I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And this is Climate Positive. I think that the world has come to acknowledge biodiversity as a critical component of our healthy natural capital moving forward. Manulife has been doing a lot both internally and with the industry around things like natural capital accounting and really understanding how do we even measure biodiversity. So we have to get that right. But again, I think the foundations are there that we'll be able to embed the consideration of biodiversity in the same way that climate is being done right now across the board. With extreme weather events proliferating, insurance companies are already on the front lines of climate change. So in this episode, I speak with Sarah Chapman, Chief Sustainability Officer for Manulife, one of the world's largest insurance providers and investment managers. Sarah discusses how Manulife incorporates ESG risks and opportunities, including emissions accounting and biodiversity issues, into its operations and investment decisions. She also details the three pillars of Manulife's ambitious impact agenda and the role of industry associations and policy in supporting financially material ESG initiatives. So I haven't met many with a PhD in sustainability and corporate responsibility. What drove you to pursue this degree? So when I did my PhD, and this was back before ESG was an acronym anyone knew, and it was when CSR even was just beginning. So when I told people I was doing a PhD in CSR, they said, oh, customer service representation. That's interesting. Uh, And of course, CSR, you know, at, at that time for me meant corporate social responsibility. But what really drove me to this space And the context being I did an MBA first and then moved into a PhD in this space was really about the business opportunity behind driving social and environmental impact. So really understanding not just that, yes, this is a nice thing to do back at the time where this was really focused on philanthropic efforts and largely compliance-driven efforts with respect to things like environmental risk and you know environmental health and safety aspects, but truly the business growth and economic value opportunities that come with some of the most significant economic, environmental, and social challenges that we have across the industry and across the world. Definitely resonates with us. I think you then spent some time in academia after your PhD, but then made the jump to the corporate world. Can you talk a little bit about that process and and why you made that jump? Yeah, so my PhD was actually focused entirely on the business context for this space. So I spent, you know, an enormous amount of time working with different businesses, really trying to prove out the business case for both social and environmental different use cases and one of those organizations, you know, within the PhD, I ended up coming full-time on to lead at the time what we called social innovation. So this was really about how do you take an existing product or service and innovate it in a way that is going to drive growth for the organization, introduce perhaps a new customer segment, but do it in a way that it is addressing, you know, a, a really sort of hairy environmental or social issue at the same time. So that jump, I think, because the world was still processing what really things like shared value meant in the business. It was a very natural jump to be able to bring it to life, what we had sort of been working through in theory, bring it to life in some really innovative ways from a business context. And you're now the Global Chief Sustainability Officer, or CSO, at Manulife Investment Management. 
many corporates and investment managers are hiring in-house CEOs. I think there's been a trend in the last few years, especially. So tell us exactly what a CSO actually does, you know, especially on a day-to-day basis, because I'm sure many folks have no idea. Yes. And just to clarify, so Chief Sustainability Officer for Manulife globally, which includes not only Manulife Investment Management, our global wealth and asset management business, but also the life and health insurance company, again, operating across U.S., Canada, and large markets in Asia. So what does a CSO do? Ultimately, in my opinion, and the way that we've structured sustainability and you know the application of ESG in our organization is that it's actually very decentralized. And what I mean by that is that every business and every group function in some way plays a role in delivering against our ESG ambition. So whether it's finance, helping us really understand and build financial grade processes and controls with respect to our emissions data, or it's our real estate business and the way that they're taking into consideration things like climate risk in both their investment portfolio and the operational sort of excellence of the way that we're running our buildings. So it's it's truly decentralized in that everybody in some way has responsibility for different aspects of ESG across the organization. My role as the chief sustainability officer is to set that sort of North Star vision for the organization. What are the key things and the key areas where we believe we have both credibility and a right to really move the needle on specific social and environmental issues, both through our business and our interaction with our customers, our engagement with our own people, and importantly, the role that we play from you know, an external ecosystem perspective in, in the industry. So setting that North Star vision, understanding how are we measuring success, and really holding the organization accountable for you know, the commitments that we're making. Uh, and then, of course, ultimately, the reporting and disclosure on both that strategy and our progress against it. Absolutely. And you've done a great job of laying that all out in your sustainability report. I saw the most recent one, which was 2021. And you detail in there the impact agenda, which I think is probably part of the strategy that, that you've developed, where you discuss how you create long-term value for your business, for communities, for the planet. And you've actually chosen three specific issue areas where you think you do have the greatest ability to affect social and environmental change. Could you tell us a bit about these three pillars? Sure. So this was in an effort to get very focused around where, again, we feel we have credibility and through our business, we can affect the greatest change. There's three key areas. One is around sustained health and well-being. So As a global life and health insurance company, this is a very obvious place for us from a shared value perspective. The healthier our customers, the better it is for us as a business and the opportunity, obviously, to move the needle on society's health more broadly. This is anchored against our leading position with respect to behavioral insurance, but it also touches on the important role that we play from a financial security perspective. So we have a large retirement business across the world that is really helping people on a day-to-day basis plan for and understand financial savings and financial education more broadly, you know, again, not just through, you know, our retirement, but also our wealth and advice businesses as well. So the first pillar is all about sustained health and well-being, a place where we feel, again, we have a great role to play in the world. 
Second one is around inclusive economic opportunity. So building upon obviously our you know, significant focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, not only in our own talent from an acquisition and retention perspective, but importantly, also through other areas of our business. So this is about procurement. How are we thinking about supplier diversity? How are we thinking about access to finance and the role that we play as not only a global life and health insurance company, but also on the financial wealth management planning side, the role that we play to really help build up and serve the underserved with respect to access to finance and financial inclusion. So second one is all about, you know, anchored around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then the third one is sustainability. And this is sort of has two main parts for us right now, a huge focus, obviously, on climate change and equally a focus on biodiversity. So this is building upon a real leading stance we have as the largest institutional manager of agriculture and timberland in the world. We have had a long history of really understanding and driving natural climate solutions and owning and managing the most sustainable forests and farms across the world. And so, you know, we believe greatly in both the opportunity that exists from an investment perspective, but also the role we have to play to drive further scaling of natural climate solutions with a lens of both climate change and biodiversity. Yeah, no, that's great. I want to get into that in just a minute. But first, I want to talk about net zero. A lot of companies, especially asset managers, have set net zero targets. And for companies like yours and ours, most of our emissions are in our scope three, category 15, or the emissions yeah. associated with the investments that we make. And you, I believe, set a target to be net zero by 2050. Can you talk to us about, uh, you know, we've gone through the process ourselves, you know, how difficult it can be to measure the emissions from the assets that you finance and, and your other investments and how that effort is going for you currently? Yeah. So, let me just provocatively say, for us, net zero means nothing unless we truly understand and set shorter-term finance emissions targets. Net zero is, is so far in the future, although I will say from a scope one and two perspective, we are already net zero in our operations. And that's in large part, again, due to the operational control we have over a significant amount of agriculture and timberland that allows us to inset against our scope one and two. So we, we feel very good about where we're at from an operational perspective, though we have set a further absolute emissions reduction target of 35 by 2035. Again, for any financial services organization, finance emissions is the most critical aspect of emissions. And it's also arguably the most complex to be able to measure because fundamentally, for the companies that we invest in, we rely on them to be disclosing their emissions because their emissions become our scope three finance emissions. So at the same time, I also believe that we can't let perfect be the enemy of good. And for some, you know, the challenge around finance emissions, the challenge in terms of the data and, and you know, the complexity of how we understand and, and measure and track and report that 
often can be used as an excuse. And it's not for us. This is an industry-wide problem that we are working very closely with peers and industry groups to move the needle on. There's a lot happening, obviously, on the regulatory side of things in terms of, you know, the push for disclosure with respect to emissions, which will help us greatly on this mission. But the complexity of emissions accounting has come a long way and and I think has matured in in a really significant way whereby we are seeing convergence of standards and accounting methodologies so that we are able to compare apples to apples when we look at emissions accounting. And you already have a $67 billion sustainable investment portfolio that is, I believe, fully net zero or green or, or has avoided emissions associated with it. Are there any particular asset classes within this larger portfolio that you see particularly interesting in terms of growth, because it will obviously help you hit your net zero interim targets and also from a risk return perspective? Or so any asset classes that are particularly interesting to you all at this point in time? We obviously feel strongly on on the agriculture and timberland side from a private asset perspective. We believe that there is an enormous opportunity in general for private asset classes, specifically ag, timber, real estate as well. And, And that's one that we've been historically very focused on and a leader in. And what I will say is that whilst there is an enormous opportunity from sort of that impact investing side of things whereby, you know, particularly institutional clients who have set net zero targets are now looking at these asset classes to help them achieve that. There is also great financial returns associated with this asset class as well. And and we've seen that in the long term. So uh, great opportunity there and and an area where we've been focused. Excellent. We'll dig into that a little bit more. And I did read just a few weeks ago, Zurich Financial and Munich Re decided to exit the Net Zero Insurance Alliance, which is an industry association that many insurers have joined to demonstrate their commitment to net zero and moving in that direction. And one of those insurers cited antitrust concerns in terms of collusion. And just curious, what are your thoughts on these sorts of industry associations and their role in pushing the industries that they represent forward in this regard? Yeah, if we step back two years ago, there was an enormous influx and a stand-up of many of these different industry associations. And that was reflective of the industry trying to grapple together and collaboratively on, on these really crunchy issues like net zero that we were trying to sort of get our heads wrapped around. And so you saw a massive influx. Obviously, many things have changed, particularly the regulatory environment. And you know, I think that people are taking a very careful look now upon what commitments they've made, what industry associations are continuing to maintain momentum and and those that maybe need to be converged with others. And and I think you're seeing that, you know, across the board. We see increasing noise on on G fans and some concerns there. So I won't comment specifically on that industry alliance as it stands, but ultimately, you know, I think they have an important role to bring industry peers together to figure out these issues. But there was a massive influx of them. And and I think we're just going to start to see some convergence and some that rise to the top as the most relevant for organizations. Climate Positive is produced by Hassi, a leading climate investment firm that actively partners with clients to deploy real assets that facilitate the energy transition. To learn more, please visit Hassi.com.
You mentioned biodiversity a little bit ago, so let's turn to the intersection of biodiversity and climate because it's an increasingly important topic. It's become increasingly clear that climate and nature are inextricably linked and enabling the energy transition while managing the potential negative impacts on biodiversity is a very complex challenge. For example, global mining exploring is accelerating in what are called key biodiversity areas or KBAs as companies seek new deposits of lithium and copper for for batteries, for transportation and other energy infrastructure. And so the global community has started to mobilize around this and, and, and recognizing the need to halt what could be a dangerous decline in biodiversity. Uh, 190 nations agreed last year to place 30% of the planet's land and sea under protection and to manage the remaining 70% to avoid losing areas of high importance of biodiversity and to ensure businesses disclose biodiversity risks and impacts from their operations. So talk to us about how Manulife looks at this biodiversity challenge, both risks and opportunities. Yeah, so Manulife has obviously been heavily engaged in the biodiversity conversation for a while. We are a signatory to the Finance for Biodiversity Pledge. We were very engaged at COP15 held in Montreal a few months ago. And I think that the world has come to acknowledge biodiversity as a critical component of our healthy natural capital moving forward. And My observations coming out of COP15 and beyond are as follows. Number one, I think we will be able to leverage a lot of the important groundwork that was set with climate change. If you think about something like TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, and the rallying of the industry and regulators and everyone around that framework, We should be able to see a fast follow with TNFD, Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, given that people are aligned to that type of framework. So I hope that we are able to build upon the foundations and the frameworks that have been set with the context of climate change for the purposes of biodiversity, particularly in the corporate and financial world. So I think that there's a huge opportunity to scale and leverage from that work, and, and we're certainly seeing the opportunity. That being said, biodiversity is very complex, particularly the measurement of biodiversity is is very challenging and arguably far more challenging than emissions, which again is complex, but we sort of have our head wrapped around that. So Manulife has been doing a lot both internally and with the industry around things like natural capital accounting and really understanding how do we even measure biodiversity? So we have to get that right. But again, I think the foundations are there that we'll be able to embed the consideration of biodiversity, both risks and opportunities in the same way that climate is being done right now across the board. Yeah, absolutely agree. And you mentioned previously your sustainable timber and and agriculture portfolio, at least $11 billion of assets in, in at least one of those asset classes. How are you leveraging this portfolio to support both the climate, net zero, other mitigation goals, and biodiversity challenges? So this is an important asset class, not the only one, but an important one. And there's a couple of important elements to sort of highlight here. One is In order for these asset classes to be successful, we really need to, we as an industry, need to align on high integrity carbon standards to ensure legitimacy behind that other value that that this asset class is bringing. And 
in March of 2022, we actually released our own carbon principles that align with existing ones out there. And, you know, this is about going, you know, above and beyond emerging international best practices, but really sort of setting into stone the way that we think about how we measure carbon, carbon removals, which becomes an important element as you think about the value of these asset classes. So that's certainly incredibly important to us because as we start to to see the opportunity from an investment perspective in these asset classes, institutional investors acknowledge that there is, yes, the financial return associated with something like agriculture and timber, but also the other you know, value that comes from the carbon credits, whether they inset those or sell them on the market for offsets for additional financial return. So there's an incredible opportunity that you know, Manulife has been at the center of and, and we believe can be scaled in a big way. And very important to get those carbon credits right. And the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market, I know, has also recently put out some principles, at least, that will help drive that market forward as well. You mentioned too earlier, regulators, as you know, insurers are already on the front lines of climate change, but now some are being thrust into political battles over ESG broadly, uh, at least here in the U.S. State lawmakers in, in some red states like Texas, North Dakota, South Dakota, they're trying to bar insurers from weighing any environmental, social, or governance factors in uh, underwriting policies, while some more activist shareholders and, and some blue states are trying to limit insurers' investments in underwriting in oil and gas projects due to climate considerations. In fact, a, a bill introduced earlier this year in Connecticut would establish a surcharge on insurers that underwrite fossil fuels. How does Manulife think about the role of policy in inhibiting or driving ESG considerations in, in both your investment and your operational decisions? I'll answer the first part just to sort of set this scene with respect to the anti-ESG rhetoric in the industry right now. Obviously, it's become highly politicized, but if you sort of bring it back to the basics and sort of go beyond the headlines, fundamentally, we believe that ESG factors can have, in cases, that they can materially impact financial value. And you can take lots of examples if you think about, you know, the assessment of a real estate portfolio in a floodplain, right? And the impact of climate change, you know, with respect to flooding in certain floodplains, like that's that's a very real financial risk that you would take into consideration. So we believe that ESG factors can materially impact financial value. And therefore, we take those into consideration when they are material into our investing process. And if you just sort of anchor against that, it removes the noise of the sort of ideological, you know, integration of ESG factors that aren't necessarily arguably financially material. In terms of the role that policy can play, it's incredibly important. And I think we also have to understand the benefits and risks of the carrots and the sticks with respect to policy. So where is it that incentives are going to work really well? And where is it that something like a carbon tax is important? And the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, I think is a great example of some carrots that have been put out there that is actually driving investment and flows into the US because people see the opportunity that there is a carrot and there is incentives uh, out there. And, and I think that that's an important one for, for all jurisdictions to see and watch as that plays out 
because, you know, I think the carrot can be more powerful, particularly in some markets to incentivize strong behavior. Obviously, things like carbon tax still have a role, but but fundamentally policy is incredibly important for us to move, but it's not the only tenant to pull. Corporates have, and you know, broader capital markets have an important role to play as well. Absolutely. Great answer. Well, we're almost done, Sarah, but first we have what we call the hot seat. So we asked for your sure. immediate reactions to the following statements. The hardest decision I've ever made is? Uh, where to live and when to move. <laughs> Those are hard. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I've changed my mind on is? Switching between an iPad and a laptop. <laughs> <laughs> For this very interview. <laughs> very real time. Um, the person I've learned the most from is? Uh, mentors in my professional career that I have had for sure. When I need to recharge, I uh, get a babysitter. <laughs> <laughs> I have two little ones, two under two. So, uh, <laughs> oh, two under two. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> um, the key ingredient to my productivity is, and it could be the same answer too, but <laughs> oh, a babysitter. No. Um, <laughs> I actually love email. I find email to be an incredibly useful and productive tool. Excellent. I don't think everyone agrees with that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> I want my kids to know. That we are working every day to leave a better world for them. I believe that you're an avid skier. So the most underrated ski resort is. Ooh. Great question. Well, as a Canadian, I have to say Whistler, uh, though I don't think that that's necessarily underrated. But I spent an enormous amount of time as a child at Smuggler's Notch in Vermont. Excellent. I've not been there. Definitely to check it out. The most insightful book or article I've read recently is... So I try and read things that are outside of the industry that we work in because I think that there's an enormous amount to learn from innovations in different industries. And I think we have a lot to learn, even from an environmental perspective, if you can believe it, in, in our natural resource sector and where they've done. So um, I, I love some of the industry trade pubs outside of the financial service industry to learn from great work that's being done there. And finally, to me, climate positive means? Seeing the opportunity that climate change can bring to the world, the opportunity from an investment perspective, the opportunity from a technology perspective. So beyond the technical definition of climate positive, uh, I think we need to see climate for the opportunities that it will present us. Great answer. It's maybe the favorite one that I've received on that one. Uh, <laughs> well, well, thank you very much, Sarah. It's been really great having you and look forward to uh, talking again sometime. Fantastic. Thank you. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. This really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosiPod or email us at ClimatePositive at Hassie.com. I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.